0: But Tessa, อะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะ word to Ada had to some ma some but Tessa not more Tessa but is a very auspicious day indeed uh, to have so many people come to celebrate the birthday of our teacher, Tanajan Chah. It's a way of expressing our respect and gratitude to a teacher who most of you have never met have uh, only heard uh, of him and maybe have read translations of his teachings uh, some of us have had the good fortune to actually be with him live with him for uh, many years and then a birthday is, this is his 72nd birthday which is a significant age. Uh, it's the, what, sixth, sixth uh, cycle, completed six cycles of life. There's 12 years in a cycle. And our teacher is still alive in Thailand, but is no longer uh, teaching in, in a way that we... Uh, can, uh, that we usually regard teaching. He's, he had a, a stroke about eight years ago and many complicated things happened in which uh, he is now quite uh, uh, incapacitated, his physically. And so over these past eight years, um, we've had to adjust readjust ourselves to uh, mm-hmm. say, taking care of, uh, looking after our teacher, uh, rather than him looking after us. Before we felt very much that uh, Lung Po Cha was looking after us uh, in, in many ways, and uh, at this time we, we in the past eight years we've had to. Work together to look after him, at least physically. But the teaching was that he taught wasn't about himself or about any worldly thing, but a way to transcend and get beyond just the the attachments we form to worldly states. Uh, a, a person, a teacher of the quality uh, of Lungpocha, is one that, uh, say, one could easily uh, develop strong atta- attachments to. He was a very charismatic figure. He had uh, great personal warmth and charm. Uh, he was very wise, a uh, very compassionate teacher. So all these, of course, are qualities that attract us. And He was a teacher that we liked to get near to. I remember uh, one always wanted to be with him or be around him. Uh, in the evenings, they usually would in Thailand, the, the, the kutis that uh, monks live in, usually they're built on pillars so that they, the monk usually lives uh, uh, upstairs in a, in a little room and then down below he would have a, a kind of meeting area underneath the, his uh, kuti. And usually in the evenings after the evening chanting he'd be sitting there and we could all, we'd find ourselves uh, inclining over towards his kuti. At least I would find myself almost fatally, magnetically attracted over. Uh, my kuti was usually in an opposite direction. But after the evening chanting I somehow would find myself uh, kind of being pulled over or compelled over to that, to the direction of his kuti, uh, looking to see if he was sitting there underneath his kuti, and then one would join him. Many times one didn't have anything to discuss personally or had, had didn't have, go there to to talk about anything in particular, but one enjoyed just being with such an excellent kind of human being. so this is this is uh, something that, uh, that I'd never really experienced before. I never felt in my life uh, that I could that, that, there, that this was possible, that I would just before my relationships with other human beings were usually quite selfish or formal or traditional, uh, based on all kinds of things, but uh, on attitudes and problems. But with Lung Cha one began to appreciate the attitude of of, uh, of just being with, physically being near and with uh, a wise, compassionate human being. At first, my first year uh, living with him, uh, my ability to understand and comprehend what he was actually saying was was very limited, since I I didn't understand the Thai language and he couldn't speak English, so I would find myself just more or less uh, sitting around, usually not understanding very much at all. But still, that was all right. That was, uh, it was one still wanted to be near, physically near, such a, a person. We began to realize that, that our human state is a state that, with great potential, that um, the problems we create, the, the, uh, the complications of our minds, uh, the selfishness that we tend to to produce out of our out of our minds uh, make life very difficult for ourselves and the people around us and our societies become complicated and and uh, with endless problems we forget the the, the the underlying peacefulness and the beauty uh, that that each one of us is able to be in touch with and even to express when there is no selfish attitude, no selfish delusions in the mind. Hmm. And yet so many, many of us used to go and seek a, a kind of trying to get away from people because we felt there was too much demand on us, or there was too much conflict, too much irritation, too much annoyance. I used to find myself as a layman, uh, always trying to get away from other people because I found people generally irritating. I thought it'd be nice to just live alone, where I wouldn't have to be irritated. But yet living alone isn't the answer either because one gets lonely. So then one goes out to find somebody to be irritated with. <laughs> but then the ideal experience was to find someone that, who would reflect your own stupidity, selfishness, uh, your own fears and anxieties. And sometimes that would be rather upsetting. It wasn't always just serenity and and uh, tranquility around uh, Lung Po It wasn't that. But there was a directness and an honesty, and sometimes one had to really look at uh, directly at one's own uh, at rather ugly faces and attitudes that one could produce in one's mind because he was quite capable of, of, of setting off various things within our minds. But, the, but it wasn't to irritate or frustrate us, but to encourage us, compassionately encourage us to look at ourselves. Look at, our, look at the foolishness, the fears, the anxieties, the worries, the endless problems and complexities that we can create out of nothing. So one never felt uh, in the presence of Lumbardshaw that there was any, any kind of uh, there. It wasn't. Uh, one trusted him in other words. One had a confidence in him that that when one was around, when one was near. That even though sometimes it was rather painful to have to to look at unpleasant things within yourself, it was always. Uh, an opportunity to come to terms, to relinquish, to bear with, to be patient, to endure that which we would in no ways bother to endure if we were with somebody else or in some other place. A birthday is, uh, we celebrate birthdays a lot in the West, uh, birthdays are very important to us, uh, and in Thailand, usually uh, birthdays aren't very, aren't as important, to say, in, to Buddhists as they are to to people in the in the Western world. Uh, birthdays are in Thailand. Buddhists would, if it was somebody's birthday, then they'd go and they'd take offerings to the monks rather than than. Uh, waiting to receive gifts from from friends. So the way a Buddhist say in Thailand would celebrate a birthday would be to go ma- to make a meal, make a food and offer it to the Sangha. But then when when you have a teacher like Lung po Cha, one takes every opportunity to they respect and show uh, and, and honour such a human being. So Birthdays become uh, occasions for the disciples uh, and the friends of a teacher that they can go to the monastery in order to, say, give presents, give food, give all kinds of things to uh, a dearly beloved and respected teacher. But being born is something we all have experienced. We've all been born into this world. We all have this human body. And this body lives its, its span of time and then dies. So this is, we have a birthday and a death day. The birthday we've already experienced, but none of us remember. The death day is something we all have yet to experience. And we, we don't know quite what when it will be. But uh, we know that it will happen, and we hope that we will have the presence of mind to be fully awake and aware at that time when when our death day happens to us. So, birth and death are the are the uh, say the beginning and the end of an individual's life, uh, of, of of a lifetime of of an, any human being. We're born and then we die. And during that span between birth and death, all kinds of things happen to us. We have pleasures, happiness, success, praise, uh, good health, uh, opportunities, occasions, adventures, romances, excitement, interesting. Uh, fascinating experiences. We also have uh, its opposite: suffering, sickness, failures, uh, loss of fortune, misfortune, separation from the loved, uh, disappointments, despair, and all the all the negative side. And yet, most of the time, between birth and death, it is neither particularly. Happy and wonderful and successful, nor is it miserable and horrible. It's just very ordinary movement: getting up, sitting down, lying down, getting up in the morning, putting on our clothes, uh, getting ready, ready to go to work, eating breakfast, uh, washing our face, brushing our teeth, walking from here to wherever. Um, getting on the bus, getting off the bus, waiting for the bus, <laughs> waiting for the lift, uh, going to the office, and just these kind of ordinary daily life experience. Most of our day is filled with just these very ordinary experiences. Eating food, um, resting, um, having to bathe and wash ourselves, take care of our bodies, uh, keep warm or keep cool or whatever. So most of a human lifetime is neither particularly happy nor particularly miserable. It's ordinary. And this ordinariness is the emphasis that Lung Po Chab would make all the time. He would, would always try to get us to look at the ordinariness of our lives rather than encourage us to to try to seek extremes. To try to have big experiences, big peak experiences or to do extreme kind of practices. For example, when I first lived with him, I was, uh, ordinariness was so boring. I just couldn't even comprehend paying attention to to anything ordinary. I always had to have kind of big things to do, important practices to develop, uh, ascetic uh, practices to to toughen myself up, to to prove myself, to to uh, get rid of my defilements. That's how my mind worked. The mind of a of a worldly man. Who wanted to conquer and get rid of the devil, the demons, all the, uh, all the wicked things, but uh, murder the defilements, destroy the obstacles, uh, conquer the, the enemy. That's how an average man minds work, isn't it? It's kind of the, the male energy wanting to, to uh, get rid of. So, just in one, one, uh, one For example, uh, in regards to eating food, the way we eat food from the from the alms bowl. I used to, uh, I had at first a, a bit of a problem with the food that we would get because it was a very different kind of diet than I than I was used to, a different kind of uh, seasonings and. And different types of foods would be given to me. And so uh, I would, uh, you know, determine to to eat this food. Uh, but I noticed the monk next to me was always uh, able to eat everything in his bowl. In fact, uh, everything went into his bowl. If He was given a, a cup of coffee. The coffee went inside the alms bowl along with the fish. And the pork and the chicken, and the curries. If he's given a, a bottle of Pepsi Cola, I'd see him pour this Pepsi Cola into the alms bowl. And uh, every like uh, a pudding or a sweet, or whatever, everything went in into the alms bowl, one thing on top of the other. And I thought this is this is what I should be doing. This is this is really good practice. And yet, at first, I couldn't—I couldn't make myself do that. But I eventually uh, would uh, try to to do this kind of practice, to try to make everything as nauseating as possible, <laughs> thinking that that was what I was supposed to be doing. I'd go on fast and try to see how long I could go without any kind of nourishment, and and uh, see see what that was like. And I always had some plan, some idea of, of torturing myself in regards to food. And if I found myself enjoying food at all, I began to feel that I wasn't really practicing, that if there was any kind of pleasure involved in anything, it was somehow bad, and that one should uh, try to uh, make life as difficult as possible was the duty of a monk. <laughs> so I... Uh, proceeded to this, this plan, but after a while, and I thought, and I thought I was being a very good monk, right? and uh, I, of course, I would manage to, you know, not in any kind of, uh, overt way, but I was hoping that everybody was kind of looking at my practice, because I like being praised, and people say, uh, tomato was really a good monk. So one day I went to Ajahn Chah, decided to go on a on another fast and I asked him about it and and he said, oh, that's fine. Then he pointed to a monk uh, sitting near him and he said, but that monk over there you see, he doesn't have to do all these things. He just eats what he gets. He doesn't make any problem about food. Uh, he doesn't have to go on fast. And then Ajahn Chah Laughed kind of cheerfully, and leaving me with this. Well, I said, uh, he said I could do this, but then he then he pointed out that this, this really wasn't necessary. That uh, maybe I should just learn to eat ordinary, without make any problems about food. Uh, that there was just the the way we ate our food, the style of eating from the bowl, and that the whole purpose was to provide nourishment for the body uh, and to be mindful. And there was no need to, to, to make a problem about the, this, this eating of food. That the, the monastic life was such that it, the discipline, uh, the, the way of practice is around Quite ordinary things, and learning to live a, a life in a quite ordinary way, but mindfully, rather than just perfunctorily or habitually. So this was this was an emphasis Longpo Cha always made in his teaching. He was not into kind of a highly developed techniques of meditation. Uh, he didn't, I used to do this very slow walking that I learned, uh, the Burmese method, where you do a very uh, concentrated kind of walking, uh, noting each movement of your feet. And he said, uh, he said, advise me not to do that anymore. He said, just walk ordinary, ordinarily. Learn to be mindful while walking at an ordinary pace. Be mindful while you're just eating your food from an an alms bowl. Be mindful whatever you're doing, when you're bowing, when you're chanting, when you're going from the Dharma hall to your kuti. Be mindful while putting on the robe, while going on the alms round. In just the daily routine of monastic life, the whole Way of mindfulness is was integrated into just daily life meditation. Then he said, if you didn't do any kind of formal meditation practice, but just lived within the restraint of vinaya for ten years, uh, you would you would understand the dhamma. That just the monastic form itself uh, with its with its, with the way of living uh, and being mindful around just the, the ordinary life of a monastery, if one was truly uh, mindful and reflective on it, that was all you needed to see and understand Dhamma. That even any extreme form of practice was not necessary. You didn't have to have uh, all kinds of special retreats and special periods and formalized practice sessions and and develop this and develop that. He was point. He was always point at just the life of a of a Buddhist monk as an ordinary daily experience. Because it's the ordinariness of our lives that we don't where we are most heedless and most unaware. And our egos, our sense of self-importance is very much connected to developing a practice of getting somewhere, of achieving, of doing something special, uh, having the attitude that I have to do this in order to become something. uh, Always an extreme of some sort, some special thing I need to do something I have to develop, something, some defilements I have to conquer and get rid of. All this way of thinking was to be witnessed and recognized in an ordinary uh, daily life practice. Here in the West, uh, Western people, I think, we we really like extremes. We're an extreme kind of race, I think, and we're, we're an extreme kind of culture. Uh, they, last month I was in the United States and the West Coast and one, one I tried to contemplate that only a few hundred years ago that uh, West Coast probably didn't have, you know, before the uh, white man came to it, uh, it's probably very beautiful, actually beautiful with with uh, people living uh, i say the Indians American Indians living on the west coast, quite uh, pleasant pacific uh, kind of uh, Indians and uh, that and that they were very much aware of of ordinary daily life, their life was around just the need to Eat and sleep and and uh, preserve themselves, uh, protect themselves, and their aspirations, their spiritual aspirations, were related to to life, to the to the life experience, uh, and a respect for nature and all the forces, the unknown forces in nature that one senses and intuits, but can always be uh, that much aware of, but but can all be open to and responsive. Where European culture, we tend to be very much uh, caught up in, in, a, in an idealism and a kind of uh, artificiality that we believe in, artificial ideas and, and uh, views. That we tend to impose on everything, on ourselves, on our lives, on other people, on the environment, and the result of that, of course, is that that even though we can perform rather miraculous feats in many ways, we can build airplanes and computers and televisions and all these uh, this miraculous technology has been developed through the extremities of our through, through developing extre- extremity in our lives and in our society. Yet, in the long run, it leaves us rather empty and uh, weary and uh, starved, poverty-stricken, spiritually, spiritually uh, a, a kind of spiritual famine. when we come to buddhism to buddha Dhamma, we tend to approach it in very much the same way wanting to 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 become something wanting to become an enlightened to become an Arahana, to become somebody special to become a a a, a teacher or well, there's so many uh, kind of uh, people already claiming to be Maitreya Buddha, or to be avatars, or to be messiahs, or to be uh, whatever—something, something special, something uh, that you think no one else has ever been able to do. So, Lung po Cha was never, never making anything special or extreme. In fact, living with him, life was was always seemed quite ordinary. He never never made any claims to be anything at all. When people would ask him, what are his attainments? Was he a, an arahant? Or was he, what did he realize? Or what did he know? And, and he would just laugh and, and make fun of such questions. He wasn't interested in trying, in trying to, to point to any, 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 any deluded state And uh, as if it were anything other than a deluded state, and any attempt by any of us to try to create uh, any a kind of super uh, superman out of uh, Ajahn Chah was also uh, he was also quite good at making fun of us and making us look quite ridiculous when we would attempt to do such things. In his daily life, he was he would be quite ordinary, just eating uh, his food mindfully, uh, going on his alms round, and and uh, doing whatever needed to be done. He didn't seem to to have to do all kinds of special things. He always seemed to have time for his disciples. Always had time for the lay people. Uh, always seemed to be able to. Uh, uh, problems and and uh, deal with the the daily life experiences in a, and respond to to life in a in a wholesome and skillful way but it never looked uh, it never it never had uh, a kind of miraculous quality to it or a, a fantastic quality and because of that I used to find myself sometimes uh, wishing that, that I could live a life that had more kind of uh, excitement and more kind of uh, opportunities for, for wonderful experiences, uh, marvelous realizations, uh, having wonderful signs and, and great messages and visions. Because just breathing and sitting, standing, walking, lying down, and just eating food from your alms bowl, or putting on your robe, seemed like nothing worth paying attention to. These were just so ordinary, rather boring things that one did. But there was nothing interesting about them. They didn't seem to be worth one's attention. But the idea of developing special kind of powers of, Uh, mental control. Uh, I used to long to be able to levitate off the mat or walk on the water or be able to read other people's minds or to do something really special because just watching one's breath didn't seem to be getting me anywhere. I was just watching my breath. That's all that ever seemed to happen. But in that ordinariness, also, it was a reflection for that desire, wasn't it? When we, when we use ordinariness as, as the kind of basis for our practice, then we begin to see the desires in our minds for attainments, for special uh, achievements. wanting to become something, wanting to get rid of things that, that annoy us, wanting to feel that, we, that I am getting somewhere, that I have reached a certain state, that I know something, that I'm somebody who knows something, who's who's really getting somewhere in the practice. But the way we'd practice, we'd always be listening to this this ego, this sense of, of I want to become, I want to get somewhere, I'm afraid that I'm not getting anywhere, I'm afraid that I can't, maybe I can't do it, maybe I'm not good enough, maybe I haven't the ability, the self-doubts or the desires. These were being looked at and observed because we were allowing them to be fully conscious. We were allowing these doubts and these fears and these desires to be conscious. And when we allow them into consciousness then we begin to see that they're just uh, empty, meaningless, conditions, and let go of them. So we penetrate the nature of desire with wisdom. And so any desire, desire to become, desire to annihilate, desire for pleasures, desire uh, to have uh, unusual experiences or to have interesting time or, or anything in regards to myself becoming something would be witnessed to as an object, be seen and in that understanding, in that Uh, realization of the nature of these conditions, then there was uh, a letting go and a non-attachment and a freedom from that incessant, compulsive uh, desire to become something or get rid of something around daily life, around the ordinary flow of monastic life in a forest monastery in northeast Thailand. When I came to England 13 years ago, I'd go on retreats, started going on 10-day retreats uh, at Oakenhold in, uh, I mean, we'd go and live in a Buddhist center in Oxford and found... uh, Myself getting very kind of high on on concentration, which made me again very greedy to have more. One one really wanted more of these of these blissful moments, these special experiences uh, where your mind is very concentrated, and you feel just so full of bliss and peace, uh, and then the attachment to that state, uh, the desire for more of it, desire to to have it again and again and again, thinking that was where it's at, that the purpose of our practice was to attain these kind of, have more and more of these experiences. But Nung Po emphasis wasn't on those experiences, but was on the reflection of the desire to have and achieve and attain or to get rid of the obstacles that, te- that seem to prevent us from those kind of uh, experiences. You know, more and more, as, our, as we learn from life, say here in England, at the monasteries here, Amaravati, Chittas, and the other branches, we find ourselves not so much concerned with with special with specialties or extremity, but just the flow of life, daily life. As we have to experience it in this country, we're not trying to to say that uh, a monastery here in England should be exactly uh, like uh, the monastery in Thailand. We have to 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 do everything the way they did in Thailand because that we can't do, we can't make everything happen the way it did in Thailand. We try to to use uh, our experience in the forest monasteries of northeast Thailand as a as a guiding example that we have to take into account the conditions that surround us the way things are in a non-Buddhist country, in a in a climate that's considerably colder uh... In, uh with the culture That we're in the places that we have to live in, the kind of uh, situations we find ourselves, that which has to be done just in order to to live and survive, and to do what is necessary. But still, it's the flow of life, isn't it? The ordinariness of life, uh, the way things happen, the way things move and change. This we we begin to feel a sense of contentment and being at ease with the flow of life. No longer do we want high experiences or to be highly concentrated or to have special conditions. At least I find that, that the idea of trying to have special conditions and to try to organize things from my to get uh, extreme conditions for my practice. No longer, that kind of way of thinking is no longer attractive or, or realistic to me. If my mind starts thinking I want to have more time alone in order to develop my practice, I see that as a condition of my mind rather than as something I should be doing. I don't believe any more in all those kind of things that, that go on in my mind. I don't respect them. I don't believe in them. Because I trust more in just the ordinary flow of life. As it is for me as an individual human being in the position I'm in. It's much it's truly peaceful and tranquil to live in a way that one doesn't create conflicts or problems around life, no matter what's happening. And this takes a determination, uh, a, a willingness to to learn from experience, and to abide with the way things happen to be, both in their pleasant and unpleasant aspects and neutral ones. So I hear monks and nuns wanting more extreme situations, feeling they would like to have more of this or less of that, or always opinions, views forming about what's good for junior monks, what's good for junior nuns, what junior nuns should be doing, what junior monks should be what Anagarikas need to do, what Majjima monks should be doing, what senior monk, senior nuns, uh, the, the way that we can create uh, in our minds realms of, of beings called juniors and seniors and should-bes and should not bees these we can we can listen to we can observe rather than believe we're not here to to try to establish a, a perfect convention that is uh, that we apply under all conditions all situations but we use conventions in order to reflect on the desires that arise in our consciousness in order to be to see and understand desire and then to be able to let it go. It's only through that understanding that we can let go of desire. If you try to get rid of desire, then that's suppression. But with right understanding, then there is relinquishment, abandonment of desire, which is not a suppression, but a letting go and a realization of non-attachment. And that's done in the ordinariness of daily life. Now that doesn't mean that that we shouldn't have any extreme experiences. As if we talk about ordinariness as the way, then you're going to go start thinking i shouldn't I shouldn't ever have any kind of extreme experience at all. I shouldn't ever. I have any time alone. I shouldn't ever expect or want or, or go on a retreat by myself or I shouldn't uh, ever ask for anything. If I were a good monk or nun, I should just be mindful and aware of the flow of life uh, throughout the day and night. as an idea, That's what I should be doing. Well, that's another opinion in view, isn't it? It flows to the mind. The, the way we can take an idea of ordinariness and make an extremity out of it. <laughs> so then ordinariness becomes a cause, celebre for our lives. And anybody who wants to do anything that we think is unordinary, we, we accuse of being uh, uh, selfish or... Uh, not understanding the the way, not understanding the practice, not doing what the Ajahn says, and so forth. We can we can be we can make a cult out of ordinariness. So what can we do then? If the extremes and the ordinary. Not, but then we're not, trying to, uh, we're not trying to attach to ordinariness as an idea, but to reflect now, in whether it's an extreme situation, an ordinary one, it's only through mindfulness that we recognize <coughs> that whatever it is, whether extreme condition, uh, good, extremely good, or extremely bad, or just ordinary, that whatever is subject to arising is subject to ceasing the birth and the death of the conditioned world the beginning and the ending So I've seen people, uh, you know, because uh, Lung Phu Cho said we shouldn't walk in a slow motion that highly concentrated walk, Burmese walk, uh, slow motion, then, because we attach to the idea that Ajahn Chah said not to do that, then we think that it's wrong to do. So then when we see somebody walking very slowly, we think, they should just walk ordinary. (laughs) At an ordinary pace. It's not right to walk slowly like that. Ajahn Chah said not to do it. And we believe these kind of reactions. We we tend to, we can easily become someone who has strong opinions about what Ajahn Chah says and what Ajahn Chah teaches. And that's another attachment. We're attached to what we think he said and what we think he taught. So we there's when we're Mindful, we're aware of that attachment. What I think he taught, what I believe he said, and what he wanted us to be, and all that, can be another kind of uh, of condition that blinds us. Out of devotion and out of respect to our teacher, we can make, we can create a false teacher. So in the practice of Dhamma, we are really not trying to... to, uh, We're using... In other words, we're using every opportunity, every moment of our lives in just the, the way they happen to be, whether it's ordinary daily life or an extreme situation. It is the way it is and we can observe. We can witness that whatever is subject to arising is subject to ceasing, because this law of impermanence applies to every condition, whether it's the most extreme, the most refined, the most coarse, the most gross, or the most or the I don't think anything can be most ordinary, but just ordinary. <laughs> The the most blissful, refined state, the state of neither perception or non-perception, is impermanent. Or the most hellish, unmitigated, demonic anger is impermanent. Not to mention just a yawning or breathing or just a whatever just uh, the uh, an ordinary uh, twitching or whatever it is is impermanent so this impermanence applies to all con- all the conditioned realm the reason why one emphasizes ordinariness rather than extremity is not because not to try to ad- to get you to 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 uh, try to ad- convince you that any, that extremity is wrong and you shouldn't seek it or shouldn't bother with it. But it's encouraging you to look at and pay attention to the way things are because most of our life is ordinary. It's neither one extreme nor the other. So when we talk about ordinariness, it's just an encouragement to awaken to the flow of life as is rather than to believe that you have to have very special extreme conditions in order to practice. The Vinaya discipline of a Buddhist monk, I used to contemplate because at first, when I first became a monk, I thought that Vinaya was an extreme. I thought if if we're supposed to be ordinary, then it'd be better to be a lay person, because that seemed to be ordinary. And being a Buddhist monk, living under the Vinaya discipline, seemed to be A really, a real extreme. Celibacy was an extreme. Eating one meal a day was extreme. Shaving your head, wearing robes is extreme. Um, Just the whole, the whole, uh, it seemed everything, uh, our, our whole life seemed to be a kind of extreme form. Because I took ordinariness to be the lay life, that seemed to be normal—the way lay people lived, the attitudes, the the views, the opinions, the 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 way the, uh, the things that happened to you in in an ordinary lay uh, situation was considered normal. Was one felt was normal, and then therefore ordinary. But on further reflection and investigation, I began to realize that the Buddha established Vinaya around ordinariness rather than extremity, and that actually lay life is just, is, is an extremity rather than the monastic life. Don't expect you to believe this. <laughs> I'm saying that you're all extremists and we're not. <laughs> even though you probably thought we were the extremists. You probably think the nuns are extreme, women taking things, going too far, shaving their head, head, and uh, living a a disciplined life is an extremity. But if you contemplate the vinaya training rules, you'll find out they're all quite ordinary rules. They're about just being a decent human being, a considerate, mindful, man or woman, in regards to what you have and the people around you. Uh, Vinaya rules are are not extreme rules. They don't ask you to do anything very much, but just be mindful around uh, what you're wearing and what you're eating, uh, when you go to sleep, well, just uh, relationships to junior, to senior, to monks, to nuns, to to, uh, senior, to junior, and all the it's about living in an ordinary, daily life in a decent and respectful and moral way. Then I began to realize that Vinaya was a way of living. It wasn't, it wasn't created in order to just become a monk or a nun just briefly in order to, to do it and then to disrobe. But it was a, a whole way of living one's life as a lifetime. Living within the restraint uh, and the, of the vinaya discipline, if it was extreme, one couldn't possibly live a lifetime as a Buddhist monk or a Buddhist nun. If if this if this if if the vinaya was was just a, a series of precepts that forced us to go to extremes, but because they are precepts and training rules. About being mindful in ordinary daily life, around the few possessions, the few requisites, and the flow of our lives within uh, within a trusting uh, uh, state of mind—a mind that is open, trusting uh, in truth, refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha—all of this—to that this is the norm for a human being. This is this is something that we, when we when we find the natural flow of life within the restraint of our discipline, we find life very very simple. Life has been simplified. It's very it's uh, it's not complicated. It's it's uh, pleasant, content, uh, a way of contentment of being easily contented, uh, being uh, feeling at ease. With simplicity and ordinariness. For example, when we, when we leave, uh, say this this day was, was a busy day, a special day. But when we go back to our rooms, we go. We don't need to do anything. We need. We can just watch our breath or sit, without having to do anything. We don't have to, become anything. We don't have to distract ourselves. We can just sit and be at ease with sitting and breathing and the silence of a mind and the peace, the, the natural way of things, the way it is here and now. So even though the Buddhist monk and the Buddhist nun look like an extreme in a society such as, as this one, what I'm suggesting is that it, it's, not, it's the most ordinary it's ordinariness itself. It's normality rather than extremity. And then I'm also implying, because of that, that most people's lives are an extremity, where you go up and down emotionally, all over the place, love and hate, anger and, and happiness and, and uh, fears and desires and ambitions and compulsions and obsessions and... and And people, you can see, the the, the mind can just, emotionally, you can go up and down so many times in a minute. The emotions uh, can uh, just move very quickly. You can love everybody in the world one moment and hate them the next. Where in the ordinariness of a moment, there's no love or hate. It's just this way. It's peaceful. There's the breathing of the body, the the sitting posture or standing, walking or lying down, ordinary posture. There's just the feeling, uh, the way things are, consciousness as is. And therefore there's, there's no longer the they need to produce or create onto this moment something extreme. When you understand that truth, then you have a one who is content. One who is not content out of a kind of callousness or stupidity, not a, because you're dull and stupid, but content because there's brightness and clarity and understanding in your life. Because Dhamma only can bring you to true contentment and peacefulness. Understanding Dhamma, knowing Dhamma, only can be, is the experience of contentment and being at ease. And therefore it's a happy state of mind. It's not, a, it's not extreme bliss. It's not a, just absolutely fantastic. But it is, uh, say, the highest happiness. But not high in the sense of an extreme, but transcendent happiness or happiness of knowing and of being in which the changing conditioned realm is no longer a delusion and no longer a problem and this is this is uh, say in the, uh, in, in Po Charles's life he was an example of this for us because as you lived with him and were around him and began to not just the not just the formal teachings he gave, but one began to see that this man wasn't just a, a good speaker and and a clever uh, uh, and clever and, and, and uh, could you know give and was just using charisma and charm, but he was actually a human being who was peaceful, calm at ease with life, at ease with himself, at ease with the present situation as is. When we came to England the first time in 1977, I was wondering what Po Chau would do when he he came into a foreign country, because he never left Thailand, except to go to, he went to Laos one time, but that just the same as Thailand. Never been out of Thailand. In Thailand, he was a highly respected teacher by that time. By 1977, he was famous, highly respected, adored in Thailand. I thought, what will he do? What will happen to him? He, will he be able to maintain his equanimity and contentment and uh, humor in a country uh, that's cold, and in a in a, whose culture, whose habits, whose manners are totally different. But I found when he, when we when we landed here in, uh, in Heathrow Airport, and well, he didn't. He seemed quite at ease, quite content with the flow of life, as he happened to be experiencing it, uh, and with all its. And even though it was very different in its qualities, and, and, uh, and if you've been used to being a, a, a highly revered teacher, uh, when you find yourself in a country where you're, nobody knows who you are, you're just a strange-looking creature rather than a highly revered one, uh, you're, you can be uh, insulted and uh, even threatened. And yet, uh, Lumpur was always at ease. seemed to be at ease, and and uh, that sense of contentment and peacefulness was never seemed to uh, disappear. And so, that this was this was. Uh, uh, one began to see that this was a human being who actually had uh, practiced what he was preaching, what he was saying, had realized that, and could respond to life in that very ordinary way. Because uh, here in in England, uh, he didn't come across as as a he wasn't proclaiming himself to be anything. wasn't uh, wasn't uh, in any way trying to, to do anything special in this country, but just be here, to live here, to breathe here, to sit, stand, and walk and lie down here, and, and to be and to just be a witness to the flow of life as is. Now, in the state he's in, he's, he's. Uh, we can only make assumptions because his ability to respond and communicate to us in the ways that we understand are no longer possible. So some people project all kinds of things onto him, thinking that he doesn't know anything that's happening. He's like a a vegetable that doesn't understand anything. Others uh, believe that he knows everything that's happening every moment knows every thought in your mind. So if you go into the room, whatever you're thinking, make sure that it's good because he'll know what it is. Some people go to that extreme. We can only assume and uh, something about what, what he's actually going on in the mind of Lung Pon at this moment that we can speculate about. But what we can be aware of at this moment is is that very speculating tendency of our own mind. Uh, the opinion, the view that we might prefer. We all prefer to think that he's, right now he's, he's at ease, peaceful, and conscious, and, and uh, is not a vegetable, is uh, fully aware, uh, and we, that's what we prefer to think, that that is a preference of our mind, isn't it? that's a condition of our mind, or we might be more inclined to a negative view, such as uh, we, we uh, think he doesn't know anything anymore, he's just uh, just a, a living uh, body, a breathing body that, that is, is no more, has no more intelligence or consciousness or knows what's happening. But he is conscious, that's obvious. There's consciousness still operating. But the inability to express or communicate through language and even through physical movement is almost uh, impossible now. I think he can blink his eyes about all that he can do. But his teaching was for us to witness and observe our own mind, not to to then uh, spec- and, and to see that in us which speculates, guesses, forms opinions, has ideas. To observe that, wanting to know, wanting to, uh, or, or the way our, we we would uh, what what we would like to be. What or what we're afraid might actually be. All these are the conditions that we create in our own minds. And this is what he was really encouraging us to witness to, not to spend our lives guessing and speculating about the abilities of others, but to really learn from our own experience the way things are. Birth and death then is a birth of a body. when poor has yet to die physically. The body has is still alive. But ultimately there's no one that was ever born and no one ever dies. There's the changing conditions that come and go. Uh, but as you understand Dhamma more and more, then You don't create any person onto the condition. It's just the flow of life. What is born dies, what begins ends. And people, personalities, we create. They're our creations. And they are born and die in our minds all the time. What you think you are is something that is born and dies in your mind. And so all the time we're experiencing birth and death through our ignorance and our fears and desires. We're experiencing these mental births and deaths. We don't even know what's happening because we don't, if we're not mindful and we don't understand Dhamma, then we, don't, we can't figure out what's happening. We just get confused and worried, anxious, frightened by uh, what happens in our mind, what happens to our bodies. But as we understand Dhamma more and more, then we realize there's nothing to fear. That, that there's nobody, really, that's ever born or dies. Or well, there is a body that is born and that body dies. But it's not, it's not a, a real thing. It's not a, a kind of permanent person. It's not, it's not a personality. Personalities arise and cease in our minds. And that which knows, that which witnesses, say, that which can see the truth is not something that is born or died. So birth and death are merely the, 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 the qualities of the conditioned realm. It's merely the, the pattern of conditioned phenomena. And there's nothing wrong with it, nothing bad about it. Uh, It's just the way it is. And we can break that identification with mortality, with birth and death, through mindfulness and wisdom, right understanding of the Dhamma. So this evening we'll have, we can invite uh, some of the other monks who have uh, had... uh, been with uh, Lung Tho Cha for many years in order to hear uh, and listen to uh, what they, some of their anecdotes and their feelings, their, their uh, understanding that they have uh, realized through being with this very fine teacher.